Heritage Explains listeners, I wanted to let you know about an exciting platform available from the Heritage Foundation. While we still can't host events in person, Heritage Events Live hosts webinars almost every day on a variety of topics ranging from the key to prosperity through social capitalism to how states can reform their budgets without getting a bailout from the federal government. These webinars are free, and you can find out more by going to heritage.org slash events or by checking out the link in the show notes. If you can't catch them live, don't worry. You can always watch past events on demand. Stay informed. Stay connected to Heritage. Log on today. From my parents' house in Lake Orion, Michigan, I'm Tim Descher, and this is Heritage Explains. One of the biggest issues in the wake of the senseless killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis is how to ensure that police officers are held accountable for their actions that are beyond the scope of the classic phrase, serve and protect. A lot of people are saying a lot of different things in terms of what reforms should happen. Tonight, demands for change heard around the country. Protesters calling to defund the police, diverting money to other programs, and in some cases, rebuilding police departments from the ground up. Safe to say this sounds pretty intense and potentially scary. I'm still unclear as to what it would look like to defund the police. Here's Tucker Carlson's response to that. Here's the key. Eliminating the police does not mean eliminating authority. There is always authority. There are no vacuums in nature. The only question is whether or not the authority is legitimate, whether or not the authority is accountable, whether or not you can do anything if the authority abuses its power. In the absence of law enforcement, the answer is no. It means thugs are in charge. The most violent people have the most power. They can do whatever they want to you. That's the reality. Everyone obeys the violent people or they get hurt. The mob literally rules. Okay, so where's the middle ground? Maybe Michael Moore can provide a little clarity. Why not when they call for something that's a mental health issue? something that's a drug or alcohol addiction issue, uh, something that, um, I mean, you, you need the police, obviously, for homicide, rape, robbery, men abusing women, uh, you know, dangerous situations. And the ones who are trained to do that are trained well, go through a review process to make sure that we're not hiring racists. Um, they, they should be embraced and paid well uh, for the taking that risk for us. Okay, so it's comforting to know that not all of the far left are in favor of totally defunding the police. So now we move to reforms. Here's President Trump this week at a signing of a new executive order spelling out best practices for law enforcement agencies. Americans believe we must support the brave men and women in blue who police our streets and keep us safe. Americans also believe we must improve accountability, increase transparency, and invest more resources 
in police training, recruiting, and community engagement. Reducing crime and raising standards are not opposite goals. They are not mutually exclusive. They work together. They all work together. That is why today I'm signing an executive order encouraging police departments nationwide to adopt the highest professional standards to serve their communities. There are several calls for reforms from activists and lawmakers. Some of these reforms include completely dismantling police and rebuilding from the ground up, eliminating or reforming qualified immunity, reforming training and tactics like chokeholds, changing how officers handle misconduct, a reporting system that involves the U.S. Department of Justice, or loosening police union control over attempts at discipline and reform. And this one is where we're going to camp this week. For the most part, police departments operate at a local level, and a union represents officers during contract negotiations. So that means the federal government is somewhat limited in the reforms that it can have. If reforms are going to happen, they will look differently in each city and municipality. And it's safe to say police unions will continue to have a role in the process. According to the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, unions are the, quote, elephant in the room for these reforms and hold a, quote, nearly impenetrable barrier to disciplining officers for racism and other misconduct. So what does all this look like? How much power do the unions have when it comes to reforms? How much should they have? To get answers, we talk with Rachel Gressler. She's a research fellow here at Heritage and covers union issues. On this episode, she explains how confronting police abuse requires shifting power away from police unions and what it will take to do this. Rachel, this is a huge issue right now, and the search for blame and responsibility seems to be a common pursuit, and and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, we see the defund police movement, um, all sorts of different things happening. Um, you took the union route, saying that police unions are part of the underlying problem. Just initially, what, what did you find taking that route? Yeah, well, and I did want to start off, Tim, just, you know, acknowledging that police officers, by and large, are heroes who are putting their lives on the line to protect the communities in which they live and serve. And so I have great respect for them. But nonetheless, you know, how then do we react to these cases where there is clear misconduct and even brutality um, in some instances? And in thinking about that, you know, in my work in labor policy in general, I thought about the ways that sometimes union contracts can play a role, not just in compensation that workers get, but in the way that they are held accountable and oftentimes even disciplined. And so looking into it, 
you know, I have found that time and time again, and I think that this has grown over the decades, is that the unions have had an increasing role in the management side of the police force, and that gets to the accountability and the discipline, and that no matter what is done, whether it's at the federal level or state or even local level by the government officials, Sometimes you won't accomplish anything through those reforms if you don't get to the heart of the matter, which is the union contracts that oftentimes obstruct those reforms from actually being implemented. Rachel, we've all heard the number of complaints the officers in Minneapolis had against them, and yet they still held their positions with uh, the police force. So first of all, is that true that they had a bunch of complaints against them and they still held their positions? And why so many? And how many should there be before an officer is removed from the police force? Yes. So we have heard, um, you know, that Derek Chauvin had 17 or 18 complaints against them. And the officer who was standing guard there had multiple complaints, including the fact that Minneapolis had settled a lawsuit of alleged brutality by him for $25,000. And so it would seem, you know, why should these officers even be in uniform on the streets? But it is important to remember that not all the complaints that get filed against police officers actually have merit. Sometimes there are just people who are upset that they got arrested for a legitimate reason. You could have a drug dealer who's filing a complaint just to get a good cop who's kind of after them sidelined and off the street so that they can keep up with their nefarious activities. Um, So there are a high number of complaints that are out there. But nonetheless, you know, all of those complaints need to be taken seriously and investigated thoroughly. And if it does have merit, then there need to be consequences that will follow. Um, the problem that comes in with the union contracts is sometimes they will dictate the terms of those consequences or they will dictate what happens to a complaint, including having records erased. And so when we start thinking about you know federal lawmakers that are talking about implementing a national registry of complaints, well, what if the contract prevents that complaint from ever being registered? Wait, and wait, so, let me stop you. Let me just stop you here. So yeah. you're saying that if a police officer has a complaint filed against them and it's a legitimate complaint, complaint, the union will step in and they will dictate um, the amount of punishment that can happen, what, regardless of what that complaint is? Well, it varies by contract, and these are all local um police department contracts, but there are plenty of instances in which, you know, it might have to do with the recording of the complaint. It might have to do with saying that certain complaints that are filed by certain people or in certain processes or under certain time constraints, you know, all these little details that add up often end up having complaints dismissed that maybe should have been, you know, a a legitimate complaint. Or it can come into the discipline after those complaints, you know, regardless of whether or not they had merit. If they did, it might be that the contract prevents certain disciplines and you might get a letter of reprimand instead of actually having some unpaid time off or even being dismissed. The Minneapolis mayor said, quote, we don't have the ability to get rid of many of these officers that we know have done wrong in the past due to issues with both the contract and the arbitration associated with the union, end quote. First question, is that fair? Second question, why wouldn't he have pushed for more accountability during those negotiations? It seems like there's a little bit of a punt going on there. Yes, I think it's a fair statement to say that 
many police um, departments and the public officials in charge of them do not have the ability to enforce the accountability and the discipline they do because of those contracts. And, you know, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey referred to, he said, this one nearly impenetrable barrier, which is the union contract, called it the elephant in the room. But then that does bring to question, as you just asked, well, you know, who's negotiating these contracts and who's allowing these provisions to go into there? And while it may not be the particular politician that's in office now, it was those in the past who have consistently over time given away these management rights. And this is kind of inherent to the nature of public sector unions. And one of the problems with them is that unlike in the private sector, where you at least have management on one side and employees um, represented by the union on the other side coming to the same table, in the public sector, you have, in this case, the police union, and then the politicians coming to the table, and the police union is the one that's making the donations to the politicians, and they're the ones that are launching attack ad campaign campaigns against those politicians to get them out of office if they mention wanting to reform things or wanting to renegotiate that contract. So it's really a problem in the way that this operation runs on the public sector side, and particularly as we've seen that union police union contracts have given way more on the management side of things. Yeah. And this this isn't just happening in Minneapolis. This is all across America. You have similar problems with police unions. And and in the in the report, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, as always, everybody. So please log on and check it out. Um, This report puts meat on the bone to this talk that we're hearing uh, in in, uh, uh, cable news about police unions and responsibility and things like that. So you list some very um, good, thorough stats and occurrences that are happening on a somewhat frequent basis. The first one, if you could explain the, quote, fired, rehired issue, that'd be awesome. Yes. So, you know, it is often difficult to terminate police officers, but nonetheless, it still happens. And police chiefs have gone through cases where they have fired um, officers. And so the Washington Post looked at a collective 1,881 officers who had been terminated between 2006 and today. And of those 1,881, they found that one out of four of them had successfully appealed those decisions and the departments were forced to retire them. And there was one instance um, in particular, San Antonio Police Chief William McManus talked about how he had fired one officer, not just once, but twice and both times his decision was overturned and he was forced to rehire this individual. And he just talked about how this undermines his authority and ignores, you know, in general, police chief's understanding of what serves the best interests of the community and the department. What about collective bargaining rights? Now, I want to just for everybody, um, I want to define collective bargaining um, because we might have some folks that don't know, that is the right of individual employees in a workplace to come together and to choose a representative, in this case it would be the police union, uh, based on a majority vote who will then negotiate with their employer terms and conditions of their employment. That's collective bargaining. How is this being used right now to further this? By and large, you know, most police departments are collectively bargained and 
the officers are members of the police union. But when you look at a couple instances when it's gone from a non-unionized to a unionized force, you see that time and again, those collective bargaining agreements actually lead to an increase in violent incidents of misconduct among sheriff's offices. A study in Florida showed a 40% increase in those incidents after collective bargaining was established. And this is the same thing that's happened across the U.S. You know, a Duke professor had analyzed 178 police contracts and found that all those collective bargaining agreements would frustrate the police accountability. You know, they're limiting officer interrogations, providing a certain number of hours notice. They will require the investigators to give them questions ahead of time. You know, all sorts of things that generally just ban civilian oversight and identify officers in these civil suits that lead to the, some of the situations of, you know, grave abuse and brutality that we've seen lately. Now talk about previous attempts at reforms that have happened in the U.S. This, there are obviously this isn't the first time this has arisen and it's not going to be the last time. And so what, what have we seen in the past that's been tried and hasn't worked? Well, we did see, you know, President Barack Obama had established a task force on 21st century policing, and they put out a full report with um, a number of recommended reforms. But the thing that was missing from that was the unions. The only mention of unions in that report was to say that they needed to have a seat at the table. But the problem is that history shows when we do give unions a seat at the table, you end up with less accountability and less discipline. And that's exactly what we're trying to increase here. Um, And so there have been instances when this has been studied, and we've even seen some calls from groups on the left, like American Civil Liberties Union, acknowledging that these police union contracts have been used as vehicles for rolling back accountability and transparency and civilian oversight. Um, Nevertheless, it hasn't been talked about in the mainstream media, which is just more focused on what training can we put in place, what, you know, procedures can we ban Um, And you really have to get to the heart of these issues. The problem, I think, is when you do have bold individuals, whether it's a police chief or a mayor, any other politician who wants to tackle police reform and who realizes that the unions are a big piece of that picture, they're often put out of office because the union launches a campaign against them. And so we really need some people to be willing to go up against that. And we need the media to bring this to light so that individuals realize that this is a big piece of the picture and that you can't accomplish the type of cultural shifts that we all want to see without addressing those union contracts. One positive step that I've seen recently is just today, you know, Minneapolis police chief announced that they are opting out of the contract negotiations and saying they need to kind of transform, make some transformational changes and that they need to step back from those contracts right now and see which provisions really need to be changed. Rachel, there's a lot of proposals to fix this um, this problem that's happening right now. And one of them, again, like I said at the beginning, is we have to defund the police. I'm curious, has there ever been an attempt to defund police unions? <laughs> well, there is a case fairly recently where Camden, New Jersey, was facing a, a public safety crisis and also budget deficits. And it effectively kind of started over with its police force. It effectively essentially disbanded the union, you know, they fired and then rehired the individuals as city employees instead of union employees. Um, 
and they were able to drastically reduce their costs. And so they transformed from a police force of 175 to now over 400 police. And you just hear, whether it's from individuals there or the police chief or the city officials, that this has really been transformational for them. Um, and it's also shifted from the police officers kind of serving as guardians and being a triage unit to um now they are a proactive community policing force, and they've seen a two-thirds reduction in the homicide rate, a 95% reduction in the number of complaints against officers. And so this is one example where you can look at, you know, kind of starting from scratch and getting out of that union contract. And that's not to say that certain provisions that were in there will not be part of the new agreement, um, but it's so difficult to just change even one provision often that starting from scratch really does seem to make a lot of sense. What are some of the minimum next steps that we can and should take in the wake of this common discussion? Yeah, so at a minimum, you know, every local and city official and police department need to be looking at those union contracts and renegotiating any provisions that are in there that hamstring their ability to enforce accountability and discipline. And those provisions certainly vary across state and cities, but anything that is taking away the management authority of those police chiefs and the public officials needs to come out. You know, when you think about the way that we ensure products are safe, we wouldn't allow people that are a group that's representing the workers who produce those products to set the safety standards and to control the consequences if the workers violate those standards. And so similarly, we can't protect the community members from police misconduct and abuse if we're going to allow the police unions to be the ones that control the circumstances and treatment of misconduct allegations, or if they're allowed to undermine the decisions that are made when those problematic officers are removed. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. So taking it from here, Rachel, what would you like to see happen in Washington, D.C., if anything? You know, I think there's not a ton that D.C. can do other than providing guidance on here are some of the trainings that need to be done. Here are some of the safety standards. Um, I think it really needs to be a message of, you know, certain cases of misconduct and abuse need to be reported. And there are certain um you know, protections that need to be in place for the citizens and the community. Um, and so largely a message to them to make sure that they have the authority to conduct their police forces and to protect their communities in the way that they need to. In addition, you know, considering the federal government's role, they do have the ability to step in in some instances of, you know, grave civil rights violations. And that has happened in the past. They're called consent decrees. When the federal government comes in and intervenes in those local police departments, the problem is that oftentimes when that's happened and they have established what these key reforms that need to take place are, the unions come down and they water down the measures and they launch legal challenges against the reforms that they've been told need to take place. And even when those might be unsuccessful challenges, they nevertheless delay implementation. And so it still gets to this heart of anything the federal government does, you've got to have the right union contract provisions there or lack of these protections that just get in the way of implementing the reforms that need to take place. 
Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being here this week. I know how much work you're doing at Heritage outside of the union issue. It's all great work, but nevertheless, it's a lot. So thank you. Thanks, Tim. And that's it for another episode of Heritage Explains. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to the show notes. I've linked to Rachel's piece and other relevant information to give you more context. And also, thank you to our loyal audience. We know that many of you listen to us on your commute into work, and over the past few months, there's been no commute. So the fact that you continue to listen each week means the world to us. Please continue to stay in touch with us. Go ahead and leave us a comment or send us an email at managingeditor at heritage.org. We will respond as soon as possible. Michelle's up next week. We'll see you then. Be well. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by John Pop.